Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. This is Tracy Murda on behalf of Richard Jacobs here at Future Tech Podcast. Today I have an exciting guest, Sean Mosfoltz, an expert in developing technology for consumer electronics and Internet services with a focus on blockchain-related projects. Sean, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Morning, Tracy. It's a good morning. I'm in San Diego right now. Oh, you are having a very good morning then. That's a great place to be. Awesome. Yeah. Well, why don't we just jump right in and tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started with blockchain technology. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, well, well, first off, um, I'm an American. Uh, I'm building a company in Taiwan, so that's kind of a sort of, sort of a strange shift. But, Whoa. <laughs> um, I went over to Taiwan to learn hardware. Yeah. And uh, I'm a software person and thought it would be interesting. Like, you know, there's this thing, I think it's Alan Kay that said this, that those that love software want to make their own hardware. So I got into making hardware and, like, learned the hardware that I'm not good at making hardware. I should stick with software. So the previous company I built uh, was called OpenMoco. We made an open source mobile phone. This was before iPhone, before Android. And um, I shut the company down in around 2010 and was uh, doing a little bit of consulting work, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, and then just got obsessed with Bitcoin. I guess that's the way I got into blockchain. <laughs> obsessed with, with Bitcoin. It is uh, something I'm just sort of biting off little bits as I can start to understand it. So tell me about Bitmark. How does it work, and, and how did that really come about? Yeah, you bet. So, um, yeah, so I was, um, like I said, I was obsessed with Bitcoin. I thought it was the most interesting technology I've ever seen. And, you know, money to me was like the weather. Um, Nothing you can do about it. If it's raining, you just, you know, put on a windbreaker, right? And um, there's no way you could change the weather. And somebody came out with a way of making their own money. And it just blew my mind that was possible. And in parallel, I was um, flying back and forth between Los Angeles and Taipei, and uh, my wife um, was pregnant, getting ready to have our, our son. And um, uh, it was really bad turbulence on, on one flight, and uh, I thought I was going to die. And so I, I went down and called my dad. My dad's an estate planning lawyer. And I said, hey, dad, like, how do I put my Bitcoin, um, how do I put my digital assets, like the music I've bought from iTunes, the books I've bought yeah. from Amazon, how do I put these things in my will? And... Um, He's based in California, so I figured if anybody would know, it would be him. It's like the most progressive state when it comes to law. Right. And um, you know, he said, he said, geez, that's a good question. I never, I never had anybody ask me that. And the first thing he asks is, well, is it your property? And you know, um, me being someone that's rented my whole life, I'm like, well, what's a property? I didn't have much relationship between property and you know, and um, what that entails. And so, um, to not go too deep into the rabbit hole, what I realized is that, or what I learned, I should say, is that. In the, um, in the real world, the physical world, we have these things, um, deeds and titles that record ownership. And um, it came about through the ownership of land, and then it, the systems have been retrofitted to handle intellectual property. 
But if you sort of fast forward to um, software, the internet, these sorts of digital stuff, what's being created in this environment, the data that we're generating, creating, making, whatever you want to call this, uh, does not have property rights. There is not systems that allow you to establish ownership. And so you have a very, very, very different environment. You're governed by terms of service instead of, you know, constitutional rights to have, you know, um, protection, privacy, you know, things that are yours, you have the right to sell, um, donate, all of these things, the moment you switch to the digital environment, they just kind of go, they go away. So um, I was talking with my team about this. I was working with some guys from my previous company and, um, and just explaining like how this really bothered me, the fact that I could not give all of my books to my son so he could know what kind of guy I was, you know, like this, this mm-hmm. is sort of a legacy thing. Like I've, I've, I've since found out that like more, it, it seems like males think about legacies more than females. I don't know why that was kind of funny to me, but, um, but just this notion of like what happens to your stuff, who owns it? Um, what can you do with it? You know, uh, what are the rights to it? And um, if you kind of step back for a bit and you say, well, what problem did Bitcoin solve? There was actually two. One was, you know, how do I give you a Bitcoin and you know that that Bitcoin was real? So that's like the authenticity problem. And the second was, um, if I give you a Bitcoin, you know, uh, how do you know I didn't give the same Bitcoin to somebody else before you? So somebody at a later time can come back and say, no, no, Tracy, like Sean already gave that Bitcoin away. You don't have it. That's known as a double spending problem. And... Um, as I looked at the way property law works and talked with lawyers about this, what I realized is that a property title actually is quite similar in that you want one person to have it. It needs to be transferable. You need to prove something known as the provenance. This is um, where, uh, uh, who owned what when, like the history of ownership, if you will. And um, those properties, I should say those attributes, um, are what is necessary to create a property. And so we had this kind of, crazy idea that if we could build a property system, all of this data that's sort of out there in like a primordial soup could be um, owned by the individual. So literally an individual could establish ownership over their data and begin to, well, A, protect it because the moment you have property, you have property rights. Um, And the moment you have property, you have the ability to generate wealth. So that's sort of like... uh, um, the kernel, like, of the idea, if you will, is that all of this data is out there. Individuals don't have property rights to it. If they could, there would be interesting opportunities for them to make money and for them to also just have, you know, the privacy protections, the freedoms that you are granted with your own property in the real world. Isn't it strange what comes out of the, the near-death experience? <laughs> all of <laughs> these crazy ideas that turn into something, you know, really gold. Yeah. So when it comes to Bitmark, what is sort of the, the platform and technology behind it? Yeah, so um, again, this is where the blockchain sort of fits in. But um, if you look at the history of personal property, like let's say I have an iPhone, um, I'm able to sell that to you. It's really a peer-to-peer transaction if you think about it. You could take some cash, you could give it to me. Um, there is no third party involved. And throughout all of history, um, pretty much all of the you know, property transactions, you know, are, are peer-to-peer. Um, a government will keep track of the record when you sell me your home or we transfer ownership to a car. But the actual transaction is, okay, I want to enter it, you want to enter it. 
um, you know, we consent to do that. Whereas um, in the digital environment, it's not that way. If you want to be able to share your ebook with a friend, um, and if Amazon doesn't want to do that, you have to either you know just take it or you know resort to piracy, which is unfortunate, right? Um, and so um, we looked at uh, specifically Bitcoin um, and said that that is really interesting if you were to map um, cash uh, onto the digital world um, to have a system that you could still do it peer-to-peer where like if you're going to map property, if you're going to do a property system for the digital environment, well, it should also be peer-to-peer. And, um, and then how should that function? What should behave? And then you get into a lot of differences between money and cash, which we can go into if there's interest. But um, that was sort of... Uh, uh, how that happened, how the tech came about. It was to solve this problem of how do you make the transfer of ownership of a digital thing peer-to-peer. Yeah, if you don't mind diving a little bit into that, I, I definitely would be interested in hearing some more. Oh, okay, cool. So, so we initially started by building a prototype. This was like um, a bit more than two years ago um, by sort of um, uh, attaching, if you will, metadata into the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, there's there's a few different ways you can do this. It's technical. It's not worth going into, but there's there's a number of um, ways you can sort of attach additional data into a Bitcoin transaction. And the idea is sort of like, let's say I have a hundred dollar bill and I write on top of the hundred dollar bill, um, this is for uh, this is like a contract for um, a painting that Tracy sold me. Okay. Now um, we looked at that, and then we looked at what are sort of, if you will, the first principles of a property? And the first principles of a property is that even if it is the same thing, like let's say we both have a Toyota Camry, um, that from the perspective of um, um, any economic actors in that transaction, each of those Camrys, even if it's the same exact year, same exact color, um, are two different properties. They have you know, the vehicle identification number, all that sort of stuff. And that's so different than, um, let's say, two $100 bills where, like, by definition, um, you know, nobody can say, hey, that $100 bill is, um, is not the one I want. I want the one that ends in serial number, you know, whatever, six. Right? Um, money, by definition, is fungible. Uh, if it's not, you're destroying the value of money. Property... Uh, by definition, is like anti-fungible. You can't interchange them. They're not the same. And so as we looked into sort of the implications of building um, a peer-to-peer property system, we realized that on, a, on, a, you know, on that actual protocol level, if you will, on the deepest of the technology levels, um, it better have the notion of something that's not interchangeable, something that each individual one is unique. And so... We ended up spending almost two years uh, to develop a blockchain from scratch specifically for securing these digital property titles um, that would be unique, that would have a provenance. Um, some of the other sort of nuances are different than money. Um, but that's, the, that's kind of the big picture, if you will, of the technology. That is absolutely incredible, really. It's- what you're doing is so amazing. What do you have as a vision for Bitmark down the road? So the vision is that, um, well, if, if you step back for a moment and you look at the history of ownership, the history of property, it came out of uh, England. Um, 
prior to uh, 1801, only kings and queens and churches could own land. And there was this really long process known as the enclosure movements where farmers, um, individuals began to assert ownership over the land that they lived in. And this was definitely not without controversy. There were all kinds of conflicts. Um, and uh, eventually Parliament resolved it. They created the notion of um, an individual private property. Right? And it was first land, like I said. And um, that gave birth to the agricultural revolution. Um, it created... Uh, an asset class that right now is about $217 trillion, so far, 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 far more than the entire world's GDP. Um, and, um, you know, most people will sort of look back at that time, and those were sort of the foundations, if you will, for democracy, right? The individual being able to own their land, um, being able to generate wealth, being able to preserve their wealth. Um, those those things created the conditions um America really um, and uh, a similar similar kind of trajectory happens with intellectual property with um, the ability to to own um, an idea a patent was originally granted by a king and queen um, uh, as a monopoly over usually commodities sometimes industries and um, a similar thing happens where the ability to own an idea became democratized we believe that right now we are in a situation where um, data itself um, is an asset class that is only owned by, let's just say, the new kings and queens, if you will, right? There's a very small elite that has the ability to, to create any sort of money or business around big data. Mm -hmm. And um, so our, our vision, if you will, is that an individual has ownership rights to their data they use that to protect their fundamental liberties, and they use that to generate wealth. Um, a property gives you a passive income. If you own a home, you can rent it. Um, if you own stock in a company, you're not actually executing the work of the company, but you're making money off of that. And so, so we believe that in a world where anyone can assign property rights, anyone can transfer property rights, that there is far more opportunity for wealth in this digital environment than there is now. Just everything you keep saying is just getting more and more excited and <laughs> blowing me away. I mean, what about, tell me a little bit more about some of the, the past projects that you've worked on and how did that lead you into, you know, where you are now? Oh, sure, sure. So, uh, I was designing and building websites. That's how I put myself through university. This was back in like the late 90s. Um, you know, kind of, kind of dot-com ages. I'm, I'm 37, um, so not that matters, but just, you know, so you kind of get some context. Uh, and then, um, then after school, well, um, uh, I went to Asia. Um, I was interested in just sort of going out and seeing the world. And so I worked for um, a company making mobile phones. Uh, we were making a very low-cost phone, a $20 phone for, for mainland China. Um, and that didn't work out. It basically just um, imploded. We couldn't deliver. And while I was working on that, I was extremely frustrated because I felt that if you looked at the hardware capacity of the phones, they were roughly the equivalent of computers from the late 90s, which were okay. I mean, you could run Excel. You could browse the web. Yet the software on it was just, it was just brain dead. Like if you wanted, if Nokia came out with a phone that could play music, you had to buy the new phone. You couldn't install a program to play music. So the company before Bitmark, um, uh, we were 
taking the Linux kernel, this was back when there was no phone, no power management that would work for these kind of low power processors in there. And we, um, we developed a full software stack, a full operating system to like, free your phone, if you will. So you would be able to install software, install programs uh, on your phone. Of course, it's kind of embarrassing talking about it because we, you know, like we got totally clobbered by you know, by the Android stuff, and then you know, uh, definitely the App Store. But it was very much um, uh, looking at the opportunity of these phones. The ecosystem is closed. Um, only a few companies have access to that. How do we open up? How do we open this whole thing up? Because the phone is the most interesting, uh, you know, device. Period. I think. And so um, that was sort of previous, and it's a thread, if you will. It's just this idea of how do you empower the individual to participate um, in an equal footing with the big companies, with the carriers, with the government um, in this world, and technology, using technology as a lever to do that. So back to, to sort of BitMark, what are the benefits yeah. to companies and consumers who are using BitMark technology? So first off, um, the moment you can assert ownership over something is the moment you have the ability to uh, participate in a market, right? Like unless you and I are clear who owns what, we can't really legally do a transaction. So. The very, very, very first step is just creating almost like a registry, if you will, of who has what. And um, from that, then uh, there can be commerce. And so, so we are um, looking at it from the perspective of both the individual, how do you have clear property rights, and also a business that wants to participate. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if instead of giving your location data away for free to Google, you could also sell it to somebody else for $100? It's roughly what your location data is worth. Um, you have all of this sort of health and fitness and footsteps and all this sort of uh, interesting data that's uh, trapped, if you will, in our mobile devices. And on the other side of that is uh, public health people, researchers that would love access to that. You know, there's a system of being able to donate your organs, um, but there isn't a system to being able to donate your data. So like, you can see, like a whole slew of possibilities that could come about once ownership over something was clear, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of like economic benefits, but then also uh, in terms of privacy benefits. Are there any new technologies that you guys are working on or any new developments that you can actually speak on and share? We're looking at, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about like who our two target customers are. So we're looking at um, people that are creating things, so photographers, musicians, artists, um, People in the space that the moment they create something, at that moment, that digital uh, thing should be titled, we believe, because that's the earliest possible state of asserting a provenance over something. So we're working um, with people, uh, individual platforms, companies um, in that space. And the other is on the side of personal data. So. Um, how can we give you ways of being able to protect your data that's running through all of these different devices, um, uh, IoT systems, and um, potentially give you ways if you want. Now, not everyone wants this, but give you ways that you could you, you yourself could monetize, could sell your data. So we're focused on those two specific uh, customer bases. I should say kind of where we're at. So. Um, 
within the next month, um, we will be announcing our private beta. So this is a fully functioning system. Um, we just want to roll it out in a controlled environment to make sure we don't have any major bugs. Um, and then about a month after that, we will open it to the general public. So we're very, very that's, that's incredible. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, i give you a little bit more specific kind of technology example that I think you'll probably find interesting. So yeah. are you, uh, have you heard of the company called If, If This Then That? Yeah. Cool. So um, If is uh, one of my favorite companies. They produce technology that allows you to automate things. Like if I'm tagged in a photo on Facebook, then save that photo to Dropbox. And from my perspective, what I love about it is it's a way for an individual to have agency over their data. And um, I went to IFT about a year ago and said, hey, um, we'd love to enable your um, IFT users to establish ownership, to assert ownership over their digital assets, the data they store in the cloud, their social media. I thought the idea was really cool. And so they gave us access to their API. We built a service that allows um, anyone that's an IFT user to, to uh, automate um, uh, so what, what we call bit marking is this creation of a digital property title. So we allow any piece of data that can go across if to be bit marked. So that could be your Spotify playlist. It could be your, um, you know, uh, your sleep patterns. Um, anything that can run across uh, most of these social networks, most of these devices, um, you know, Nest thermostats, all of those sorts of things, um, uh, once we release our, our public uh, software, you'd be able to assert ownership rights to those things. I love that. I, I like the the way you're using the, the Bitcoin and the blockchain technology. It's, it's so different than anyone I've interviewed so far, and frankly, really interesting. <laughs> so it is really cool. Well, you mentioned though what you touched on. Um, you know, you want to make sure that obviously you rolled this out in sort of a, a controlled environment, and making sure that the the little kinks are worked out, so to speak. But what have been some of the, the difficulties surrounding this Bitcoin and blockchain technology? Oh, there's so many. So first off, um, the hype of blockchain um, specifically, right? Um, Bitcoin is kind of now like the, the redheaded stepchild. Um, you know, for the record, I absolutely love Bitcoin. But <laughs> um, blockchain gets buzz now. Um, if you actually look at the transactional volume that's running through any of these public blockchains, it's shockingly low. And um, there's a lot of work that needs to go into making them scale, to making them easy to use. Um, you're, you're essentially asking an individual to write down a very, very, very long password that's impossible to memorize. Well, I shouldn't say impossible, difficult to memorize, and protect that. And if you lose that, then you lose your Bitcoin or you lose your property. And so you have all of these really difficult usability problems. You know, how do you teach people about private keys? How do you let people know that in a peer-to-peer -peer system, um, you know, there isn't a company you can call up and say, hey, uh, I forgot my passcode, right? And so you have a lot of, um, uh, I would say, just really simple behavioral challenges that have to be overcome because, these peer-to-peer -peer systems are so different than the centralized systems that have been built for the last 20 years. So figuring out how to do the user interface took us a long time. I think we probably built at least three or four prototypes um, before we figured out, hey, what's the easiest way to let somebody uh, make a digital property and then transfer that? 
um, that one's tricky. Uh, in terms of the blockchains themselves, uh, how you architect these systems, there are peer-to-peer -peer networks which are complicated. There's cryptography involved, which is you know really easy to shoot your foot off. Um, there's uh, there's just um, a lot of kind of game theory, economic incentives. Um, our blockchain, for example, does not have its own currency. We did not want to attach a currency to it. Um, when you pay for uh, transferring ownership of something, there's a small fee, and that fee is in Bitcoin. So you have to deal with the kind of the economic um, game theory, uh, if you will, incentives of how to use secure a public blockchain. Um, and so all of those things have to kind of wind together um, into a system. I think um, a good parallel is like building an operating system for a phone. I think that's sort of why, like when we looked at it, we um, it was okay. It was a lot more difficult than we thought to build a blockchain, um, but mm -hmm. we weren't against uh, biting the bullet and building our own chain specifically for what we want to do. What industry do you you think is benefiting the most from your platform or technology? Um, I think that once we do launch, I think the industry as a whole, the digital environment, anyone mm -hmm. participating in there will benefit from a healthy environment. Uh, let me give you sort of a, a kind of a real-world uh, analogy. One of the companies that I really look towards for sort of guidance is Patagonia, the clothing company. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love them. Cool. Okay. So um, they took a stance that their mission is to – um, build really great clothing that causes the least harm possible um, and to use their resources to sort of solve issues of the environmental crisis. And um, I thought about this for a while, and it took me, it took me some time before uh, I realized that in the digital environment, there is also an environmental crisis. The fact that it's, um, anyone can use anybody's data um, the fact that nobody is really responsible when 500 million accounts get hacked and stolen um, is in some ways quite similar to like the 60s and the 70s where everybody was using pesticides and toxins and, mm -hmm. um, and it was polluting the environment, polluting the land, destroying the forest, polluting the oceans. You know, I'm, I'm a surfer, and so uh, you know, polluted oceans is something that's very, very dear to my heart. And, um, and so... Uh, Patagonia has become kind of a guiding light in the apparel industry. I mean, I know even Walmart went to them and asked for advice on how do they, you know, create less harm to the environment. Um, you know, doing good for the environment has become a, capitalistically speaking, profitable thing to do, right? Sure. <laughs> and so, so like, uh, I believe that similarly in the digital environment, there is a need to create a healthy environment where who owns what uh, is clear. And when people use things, um, they are responsible for it. And when people uh, cause damage to other people's data, uh, they should be held responsible for it. And the, you know, the, the interesting thing is that all of the, the legal framework that would be necessary to enforce that kind of thing actually is there. Like property rights are some of the most fundamental uh, building blocks of the U.S. Constitution. And that is so true, and I, I guess I'm just – well, let me ask you this next question then kind of leads into that. Sure. Do you have any competition? Because this seems like a, a really different take on the whole blockchain Bitcoin market. So um, 
I'll answer the question first from how I think about competition. So mm-hmm. um, any place you're giving your data away for free, uh, to me, is competition. Um, they are uh, doing something um, that you're choosing to do um, and you're choosing to use your data through them uh, in a way that I believe is not healthy. Right? Now, um, I, I, I should clarify that a bit more. The reason I believe it's not healthy is because um, they don't respect the property rights of the individual. Um, they can refill your data. They can share your data with, you know, with anyone they want to, uh, the government included. Right? And um, so, so the, the systems that provide really, really great um, uh, ways of getting more value from your data. Um, that's our competition because essentially we want to, um, you know, let you as an individual have sort of a portfolio, if you will, of these digital assets that you're going to go shop around to places, um, keep safe, uh, and then be able to manage. Now, um, if you're asking specifically from sort of like this blockchain um, Bitcoin world, um, there are uh, a number of companies that are trying to do asset registration on a blockchain. It's being used, um, uh, I would say, um, uh, at least in terms of these trials, um, um, with sort of the greatest adoption in the financial markets. So dealing with settlements, maybe cross-border settlements, maybe uh, security settlements. So there's a few companies, um, Digital Asset Holdings, R3, uh, a number that have participated in that sort of uh, uh, securities financial sector. Um, I believe we're unique in terms of uh, thinking about it in terms of property and property rights um, and thinking about it in terms of a public blockchain. So most uh, most um, of the blockchains that are being used for this asset transfer, asset settlement stuff are uh, private blockchains. Um, and uh, I think both will work, um, but I think that if you look at the history of property, uh, it's got to be public. Um, you know, uh, home, uh, car, uh, marriage, um, all of these things, these are public records, and what makes them valuable as a property is the fact that you can see the history of it. If you couldn't see that, then it would be, you know, um, not really a property anymore. It's something different. Oh, absolutely. So you kind of talked about this already, but just out of curiosity, you know, when it comes to the risks of hacks and things like that, what is the, the scrutiny that this technology is facing currently? Yeah, good question. So um, there's a lot of misconception around Bitcoin um, and around blockchain. And these all, of, of course, will, you know, will apply to us because we use the same method to, to secure our blockchain. Um, Bitcoin and um, and and blockchains um, they use uh, something known as um, asymmetric cryptography, so public private key, and um, and uh, an individual, at, at least the way that Satoshi uh, envisioned Bitcoin working, the individual would have their private keys, and they would authorize uh, the transfer um, of ownership. Uh, of their Bitcoin to somebody else or of their digital property to somebody else. And um, the security of that private key is up to the individual. So you'll protect it with a password. You'll hopefully store it on encrypted storage. Um, Maybe you'll even take it offline if it's something very high value. And so when, when the media reports that Bitcoin is hacked, what they actually mean is that there was a, uh, 
an attacker that was able to steal private keys. The Bitcoin blockchain itself, uh, the, the security algorithms, um, the cryptography that keeps that safe is the same cryptography, really, I mean, largely, as the cryptography that keeps your bank account safe or keeps, you know, your your, your web browsing when you purchase something from Amazon safe, right? It's um, And that's just rock solid. It's not new. We've known about this stuff for a long time. So what happens is that um, it's inconvenient to manage these keys. Uh, it's difficult to manage these keys. Um, people want to trade Bitcoin. And so they put their money in uh, a Bitcoin exchange. And a Bitcoin exchange, you can think of like a bank, uh, minus any regulatory oversight. And so you sort of have kind of the worst of both worlds where you're centralizing the storage of the keys, which was like exactly the opposite of what the creator of Bitcoin wanted. And then you're not only centralizing the storage of those keys, but you're putting it with a custodian that has not had hundreds of years of regulatory oversight because what people realize is that it's usually the custodians that, that walk, off with the, you know, walk off with the money, right? And so, um, so when people talk about Bitcoin being hacked, um, I don't know, 99 times out of 100, what they're talking about is there was some Bitcoin exchange somewhere that did not secure those keys correctly, and it was stolen. So it's a big honeypot. It's just like you know Yahoo getting 500 million and then and then one billion accounts stolen. When you centralize the storage of important information, you're creating a massive incentive for hackers to go grab it. So, if you don't mind, I was just uh, doing some interviews this week, and I was talking to, to some folks about what happened in China last week. Do you think that is that going to affect the blockchain side of things at all, or is it just more so with the the Bitcoin trading? Well, so um, let me just say, like, uh, so um, a definition of a blockchain um, is some technology, some algorithms that allow you to exchange something of value without central intermediaries, okay? Now, um, if you step back and you ask yourself, okay, well, how does that fit into the existing regulatory environment? And the answer is that um, it doesn't really change stuff. If I want to send money between two people, I have to apply, uh, um, I have to um, uh, adhere to uh, these um, Practices known as like know your customer, who who are the people on both sides of the transaction, um, anti-money laundering, is this used for terrorist financing, and if you're using a blockchain or not, it doesn't change anything. When you want to do settlement of a financial asset, um, are they paying taxes? Uh, is it being recorded? Is it being reported? Again, uh, a blockchain per se doesn't change anything. When the asset that you're trading is something that a government doesn't know how to regulate or doesn't know uh, how to categorize. So, for example, like the U.S. government right now, the IRS thinks of Bitcoin as property. So if you sell it, you have to pay capital gains on it. Whereas hmm. if you go to Europe and you come back with a wad of euros and you exchange them for the bank, you don't have to tell the bank, okay, what was the value of those euros when you bought them? They just exchange them for dollars at whatever today's rate is. So there's all kinds of confusion, regulatory confusion. But I would say that's just because of the fact that these are digital assets and there's value being exchanged. Um, the blockchain per se doesn't uh, doesn't have any kind of um, uh, 
interesting, from my opinion, new regulatory angles. Um, uh, it would be known as like uh, an OTC, uh, an over-the-counter transaction, which governments have, uh, you know, uh, ours included, like the whole CDO, the whole credit default swaps, um, the stuff that brought down, you know, the world's economy, 2006, mm-hmm. 7, 8, that kind of time frame. Those were largely, you know, due to these um, uh, over-the-counter peer-to-peer transactions. So, to me, there's not much new there. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is very interesting, very, very, very difficult for governments to wrap their heads around to understand. And so I think the reaction of China, what you're seeing, is just they're trying to understand what should we do with this? How should we treat it? Um, and, uh, um, and they are taking, um, as China often does, a really sort of interesting, let's build a sandbox, let's let people experiment, let's watch and see what happens, and then let's set up a regulatory framework that's beneficial to, you know, to them. Right? And um, uh, um, if anybody's traveled to China, like all payments these days now are electronic. You're using WeChat, you're using these, um, um, uh, you know, chat programs, uh, payment wallets to pay for stuff. And so, so I think that the reason adoption of Bitcoin is so strong in China is just that it makes sense. Like, you know, the, the ability to buy and sell something digital that could potentially appreciate in value is just something that they just understand, like, instinctively. Whereas America is like, what the hell is this Bitcoin stuff? Like, I have no problem with my credit cards. <laughs> like always. It goes up very yeah, so well yeah. for us all. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy. Yeah. Well, honestly, Sean, this has been such an interesting take on this. I, I must say, like, I have interviewed a lot of folks on the on Bitcoin as well as blockchain, and I, I don't think I've had the perspective of looking at things from the, the digital asset uh, perspective and just sort of the nature in which you explain it. So I really appreciate you, you know, lending us your brain for the day and letting me pick at it a bit. Um, is there any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners before we, we bit of a do here? I just want people to know that their data should be their data and it's very valuable and there's lots of people that would love to um to use it for purposes that could create a lot of good right um both in terms of economic good wealth um and also in terms of like a public health good and so um so people should understand what's going on in the digital environment um people should look at the way companies use data and ask is this the way that you would allow a company to use Say, for example, your car, um, your home, uh, you know, your belongings. Um, is this actually uh, what makes sense from a society that's had 200 years of increasing property rights that democratize who can own what for the individual? So I think that's really what, what everybody needs to think more about is that as we live more and more in this digital environment, is it actually the environment that's healthy? Well, thank you again, Sean. Sean Moskvold an expert in developing technology for consumer electronics and Internet services with a focus on blockchain-related projects. Sean, I appreciate your time. Uh, I look forward to digging deeper into bitmark.com and seeing what other things you all are coming up with. And just keep doing what you're doing. This is amazing stuff. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, have an audience. Well, have a good one, Sean. We'll keep in touch. Okay. Okay, take care. 
You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.